0: I like trying to find that intersection of really diving deep on making something beautiful and also being incredibly functional and also being viable in the marketplace and potentially generating revenue. We've got a special bonus episode for you today.
1: Matt D. Smith better known as MDS, is the founder of Shift Nudge, and he's on a mission to lead a new generation of interface designers to build the digital products of the future. Matt's courses on Shift Nudge have helped thousands of students at top companies like Apple, Figma, Lyft, Slack, and more learn the visual skills of interface design, even when they didn't start with a design background.
2: I have taken some of Matt's courses, and I learned a lot because he's such a great teacher. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the elements of a great UI. Things like typography, color theory, and where people often go wrong in UI design. One more thing before we get started. Design Better listeners get access to three free lessons from Shift Nudge for a limited time. Here's how you get them. Go to dbtr.co slash That's dbtr, like design better, co slash shift nudge to get access to those three free lessons from one of the best UI design teachers out there. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. We're big fans of Gusto who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for Design Better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. And now, back to the show. Matt D. Smith, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Matt, you're a fellow Athenian. We both live in Athens, Georgia, and have for a long time. Talk to us about what you're doing these days. How do you introduce yourself at a party?
0: I start off first and foremost by just saying I'm a designer and I work in the tech world. And I feel like If I don't know the person that well, I'll let them ask more questions about the specifics of that. Otherwise, I'll end up rambling for 30 minutes about all the different things that I do and try to do.
2: For as long as I've known you, you've always been independent. So you're an independent designer who works with a lot of different types of clients, but things have recently
0: changed. Is is that right? Yes, that is correct. I kind of accidentally went full-time freelance and independent probably back in 2008 or nine, possibly, and started doing a lot of contracting for agencies based out of Atlanta. And one thing led to another, and it was never really a focused plan. It just kind of unfolded and ended up working out. So I did that for many years. And then in 2015, I got interested in online design education and Courses were starting to become a thing. And I always enjoyed teaching and kind of deconstructing things and how to be as efficient as possible as it relates to design and other disciplines as well. And then after a few somewhat successful attempts at design courses and things like that, I ended up creating something much more sustainable in the late 2019, 2020. And I've been doing that ever since. Shift Nudge, in its current state, is a course that teaches people how to design visually beautiful interfaces. So it's not as focused on user research or user testing, but mostly on the principles of typography, layout, and color, and how it relates to mobile interface design, web applications, and things like that. I want to dive more
2: into your course because it's pretty amazing and just like how you're approaching it. And then we can talk about the specific elements of what makes a good interface design, how you get there. But I'm curious because I know you've been recruited by so many people, and I'm in that list of people who tried and and lost (laughs) over the years. But why have you stayed independent and kind of more shifted towards entrepreneurial things versus joining a company? Because I think a lot of listeners have gone through that line of questioning themselves. Like, should I keep working for a company or should I branch out on my own and and try something new?
0: So it's really interesting to think about all of the different crossroads I've had in my career from agency work to working with startups and the various opportunities that presented themselves. And 10 years ago, I was much more indecisive and actually ended up, I went probably three interviews deep with Facebook at one point. Just because I was not so much interested in getting a full-time job or working at a startup, but I thought maybe that's what I should do. You know, to be a renowned designer, I need to have, you know, a big name on my resume. And I think the more that I push myself to making the ultimate decision, specifically with that Facebook thing, at the time you had to move, you know, your entire family to either San Francisco or New York or one of the many hubs that they had. And at that point in 2013, I think I already had a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old, possibly another one on the way. And I'm thinking like, I really don't want to move to an- another city at this stage in my life. And I think when I really just checked my gut and I was thinking, what do I really want to do? It ultimately just led to doing something for myself. And I had a few other like really good opportunities that were very enticing. But when I just imagined myself, I like the metaphor of like standing on the hill and like waving the flag of that particular brand or that particular company. I just always felt like I wouldn't be able to do it hundred percent confidently because I had this just nagging feeling that I wanted to just do something on my own and create something and produce something. And I used to sell myself short thinking like, no, that's just like a, you know, a pie in the sky dream. And you really need to do this because this is a safer bet. Go get a full-time salary. You'll be able to take care of your family. But for whatever reason, I just kept pushing and pushing and it kind of worked out. So that is where I find myself today. What are the upsides and downsides of that decision? I would say the upsides are more autonomy over the way I handle my time on a day-to-day basis, at least a perceived autonomy. I think with uh, the perceived freedom that comes with working for yourself, I might actually be busier and less free than I imagine. But if I'm not specifically clocking in somewhere, I can decide to you know do something else in the morning, drink coffee late, go work out, and then get started at 10 a.m. And I know a lot of full-time employment opportunities, they probably offer that same flexibility. But I kind of like the autonomy to also choose what I work on and choose how long I spend on something because maybe I care more about these random details than an, an employer might care about. And so I, I like having a little bit more control and a little more freedom to explore you know, my work and also just kind of how I choose to use my time. And I think that is probably the ultimate upside. The downside is no one's paying you on a regular basis. So you're always looking for the next project or the next person to come your way that, that has an opportunity. And that was also you know, a big catalyst for why I wanted to get into the education space because I knew I could create something that was a little bit more longer lasting and viable than constantly trading time for money as I was doing for many, many years with client work.
1: I'm guessing that you know at the time you made the decision it was probably a, you know maybe a little bit stressful but in retrospect now as you look at what's happening across the tech industry where there's a lot of layoffs that having your fate more in your own hands I'm guessing is is just a little bit more comforting in some ways I know you know personally I've gone through that a number of times and I've done the entrepreneurship thing and there there are a lot of stresses involved but you at least believe to some degree, you can kind of control your destiny.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think as I saw more and more, whether it was close friends or acquaintances, colleagues in the industry, whether they got laid off or lost a job or something, I realized the perceived security of having a full-time job is maybe it's not quite as secure as everyone thinks it is. And at the very least, I feel like I've been building my muscle to... I don't know, assess risk, and determine what makes the most sense from a financial perspective, whether it's like a creative endeavor or working on a project. And I've kind of built my skill and my ability to you know, find the next thing to work on and find someone that's willing to write checks for certain things. And so, also while doing all of this, I'm kind of imagining all the different people that I know at all these different companies that I've grown to become friends with, even like you, Aaron, I'm like, well, I could always go and like apply for a job at wherever one of my friends works and maybe have a little bit more of a foot in the door. And so I feel like that has been a bit of a, a mental safety net that allows me to maybe more courageously explore my own interests. So
2: why this course, Shift Nudge? One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today, not only about your, your kind of career path, and I think it represents something that a lot of our audience would, would be interested in, but you're a great interface designer. And not only are you a great interface designer, you're great at communicating how to design a, a great interface. So why did you create this course? What was the process like of creating a course and a whole platform?
0: Yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind words. There's a Saul Bass clip where he talks about, he just wants to make beautiful things. And he says, I don't care if the client cares. I don't care if you care. It matters to me. And I just want to make beautiful things. And that resonates really deeply with me. And I like trying to find that intersection of really diving deep on making something beautiful and also being incredibly functional and also being viable in the marketplace and potentially generating revenue. And so when I think about online courses and design education, I'm kind of holding in, in intention these different aspects, like making something beautiful, teaching something efficiently, transforming someone's career path, but also earning a living doing that. And so I feel like it's like the perfect Venn diagram of all of my interests where I'm have a skill set in that area, and it you know, also provides uh, value for my life and for those that get involved. Matt, maybe
1: you could walk us just quickly through what are some of the elements, if you want to set out to design a really good user interface.
0: Yeah, so in the course I talk a lot about in the early modules, my philosophy on user interface versus user experience design, because a lot of different people will define those terms differently. And I don't necessarily think there's an ultimate right or wrong answer, but I do have a strong opinion about my own viewpoint and the way that I look at projects. And so ultimately, I feel like my own personal definition that I use when I take into a new project is UX boiled down to its simplest form is trying to get someone from point A to point B. And that's as about as abstract as you can get. And then... UI are the dots along the path from point A to point B. So that's kind of how I view all of my projects and design endeavors. And so as long as I can keep that mental model of there's a beginning and there's an end, whether it's a small feature task, whether it's creating an account or you know doing something much larger from an interactive perspective, if I can hold that model in my mind while designing the interface, then i feel like i can accomplish the design and kind of pull it off a little bit more easily so that's kind of the broad perspective i can dig into the the details of the user interface if we need to but that's kind of like my overarching mental model when i approach a new project yeah let's dig into the details let's start with
2: typography because that's so essential it's you know the vast majority of an interface is actually type so what are the considerations that people should take into account as they,
0: they work on type? There's been a number of people that have posted some kind of like blanked out interface screens where all of the typography is just kind of removed from the interface. And it's just a bunch of blocks of color. And it kind of accentuates the importance of copy and typography. And I definitely think that the order of importance in my mind is definitely typography is number one layout number two, and then color number three. And then you can modify those based on the style and the preferences. But to nail down the form, I definitely like to focus on typography first. And for me, it is choosing one type size that is kind of like the workhorse type size. And it depends on the project. If it's a really complex project and maybe me and the team may be unsure of what the functionality might look like, I try to not worry about a cool typeface or something, you know, heavily branded. I like to just kind of keep it simple and really work on in a low fidelity kind of phase which triggers some people, you know, people like to write threads about how wireframes are dead and I understand a lot of the perspective that people have on some of that, but I think when I'm solving for a user experience problem first, I'm still instinctively trying to make Low fidelity designs look good. And so I will often go with one typeface, maybe a large heading, but I try to really constrain my type size usage. And then as I design more screens, I'm just kind of constantly scanning over the interface to try to find inconsistencies where I might be using 14 pixel type size on one screen and 15 on another, whether that was a mistake or not. And I'm looking for ways to just simplify those down into as few type sizes as possible. And so a lot of times, if I can do that effectively, it just that naturally leads into creating a cleaner layout. And then when I'm moving into layout, I'm poring over the interface, looking at all the negative space in between each element. Maybe there's eight pixels below a heading and maybe 16 pixels between sections. And I'm constantly tweaking these numbers to try to define the visual relationship between all of the different interactive pieces. And then if I'm designing a low fidelity, blue is my color, all my buttons are gonna be blue. I may have a green toggle or something like that, but I like to keep it super simple. I feel like when I have constrained myself, especially with a low fidelity mindset, it allows me to maybe be more creative with what interactions might happen, maybe some animations that might enhance the user experience. And then once I can get everyone to agree on Oh, this looks like a really good flow. The developers are like, "Yes, we can build this. This doesn't make us start sweating because there's not a bunch of stuff that a front-end developer would be scared of because it wasn't designed with code in mind. Once I can get everyone on the same page, then I can feel really good about now let me really explore some different typefaces, some different colors, maybe some different styles and I feel like I'm always going up to maybe 80% complete with even wireframes and leaving myself a little bit of wiggle room for more exploration with the design. And then even the design, I'll, if I'm working on it myself, I know that I might change some things before I start coding it up. So I'll design it as complete as I can within 80 to 90% because ultimately the Figma file or whatever it is on your machine is not the final product. And I know that in order to get really, really highly polished interfaces, a lot of that has to happen in code. And a lot of it can't really be fully fleshed out until you've reached that point. That's kind of my overarching perspective on the full process. Matt, if we're talking about
1: Maybe an entry level designer who's coming into their first job at a larger company, they're probably coming into a situation where there's a, a design system, there are guidelines, there's a lot of these sort of design decisions have been made for them. So, can you kind of pitch the value of understanding these fundamentals when, in essence, you may be kind of working off somebody else's work in the job that you're doing, if you're just getting started?
0: I think having a solid grasp on the fundamentals. Well, it it may not help you as much if you're working with an existing design system, but inevitably you will reach a stage where maybe there's not a perfect component or a perfect pre-designed solution that you can just pop in. And so understanding how all of these are built from the very beginning and understanding why something might have different type sizes or the hierarchy of a certain layout that's ultimately going to help you design a better interface. And so, a lot of times, when I've found myself either working with a client or a project that had a lot of existing colors or typography, even if it wasn't a design system, maybe the company had a really in depth brand guideline that we were all supposed to follow. But then maybe the direction of the project was slightly different, and I needed, you know, a fun geometric sans serif that kind of better represented their renewed vision, whereas their brand might have had an older serif font, but it wasn't really a branding project. But I could kind of just instinctively know that what they were after with the design didn't quite match up. And so we kind of had to take a step back and say, okay, let's address the underlying issue of typography. And also a lot of the colors were not accessible colors in terms of like the product brand colors. They're like almost accessible, but not quite. And If we can just tweak these hex codes just a little bit, we'll have a much safer palette to use across everything. If you don't understand those fundamentals, you might just grab all of what is available to you and you just start using it. And it might not be as effective to accomplish that long term goal. Whereas if you do have those fundamentals, you can push back where appropriate and say, okay, let's think about this typeface that we're using and let's look at these full spectrum of colors. And if we, tweak these a little bit, this is going to give us a much better foundation for moving forward with all of these different components that we're trying to create. So I think a lot of that comes with time, but I also think the foundation is going to be built on those timeless foundational principles of design that really don't change that much, whether you're designing for an iPhone or You know, even spatial computing as we're, you know, now looking at the new Apple Vision Pro, you know, there's still going to be typography, there's still going to be colors, and there's still going to be a layout. Certainly the three-dimensional aspect is different, but a lot of those principles kind of remain unchanged.
2: Let's go deeper into those principles and talk a little bit about color theory. How should we think about color in a UI design and, and how might we use it to direct the eye and also maybe behavior?
0: Yeah, so I think like one of the most common, just general, easy to understand principles, in my opinion, is determining the call to action color and the color that's going to constantly pull you forward through the experience that kind of pulls you through those stepping stones from point A to point B. And really, it can be any color. It can be black, it can be white, it can be yellow or any hue across the spectrum, but where i see a lot of early mistakes when people are either in the course and they're doing homework assignments is they might have you know a bright color in the header and maybe a little bit of the typography has a certain color and then their main call to action is also that same color and so if you just step back and you squint your eyes you see these big blobs of red all over the screen whereas i think the best solution is typically a single blob of red on the screen. And instinctively, you're training the user. We have defined red as our forward driving call to action. And so let's make sure that we understand the definition that we've assigned to that color, as opposed to let's just use red because it's part of the brand color and we can kind of sprinkle it throughout because this is the color of the brand. Whereas if you do that, you decrease the value of the color red as a forward driving action. And so I think about color theory more along the lines inside of an interface as just pulling you through as a way to instinctively know what to do next versus red should only be used for errors. Because I don't necessarily believe that because red could be a really powerful color and your errors could be orange. I think the most important thing in interface design with colors is just making sure that you understand the definition of the color as you're using it. And you can define that however you'd like, but just make sure that you have defined it well and that the intention is clear. Where
1: else do people go wrong in some of these you know, fundamental things like color theory or layout typography? What are some fundamental mistakes people make?
0: I think some of the fundamental mistakes with typography even are, are just things like Maybe there's an orphan hanging out on the last line of a thing of text on a very adjustable headline, like where an orphan is just like a single word on the bottom of a paragraph. Sometimes you can't control that if you're dealing with dynamic content. But if you can, like the main hero image on a website or a marketing site, you know every little detail should really be dialed in, whether it's line height or consistent spacing between typographic elements people will end up putting a lot of left-aligned text and sprinkling some center-aligned text here and there that's not really anchored to anything in specific. Not that you can't ever use different alignments within your design, but I think the same way that I like to define all of my colors in great detail, I also like to have like a really strong reason for why I'm using left or center-aligned text in regards to like the entire design. And so I feel like, I'm constantly also using the idea of layout connectors. I want to continually draw these lines of continuation across whether it's the really strong left alignment, or maybe there's you know a photograph that lines up really strongly with a paragraph of text. And so I think a lot of those theories kind of stem from just straight up old school, good old graphic design, use a grid, align things to the grid, and I think with interfaces you know it's definitely a lot more flexible because we've got responsive elements and grid sizes change depending on devices but i think a lot of those principles applied to interface design really hold up as long as you know how to kind of modify them for what you're trying to do
2: we'll return to the conversation after this quick break
3: our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
2: Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy Get three months free at gusto.com slash designbetter once you run your first payroll. I have run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool. It's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com designbetter design better. Can't recommend it enough. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com designbetter design better to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited-time buy-one-get-one one offers. Let's do a little thought experiment together. Imagine for a moment that you no longer have access to your computer. Say you spill coffee on it, it has an unrecoverable crash, or someone steals it. How much would a total loss of your data disrupt your work and your life? It would be significant, right? This is why you should be protecting all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution like CrashPlan. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. I dropped my laptop on marble stairs just about an hour before stepping on stage at a big conference in Europe, and I lost my presentation. I didn't have a backup. CrashPlan would have saved me in that moment. Businesses of all sizes can benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities by as many user licenses as you need and then you can easily manage them all under one account. Just go to crashplan.com/designbetter to sign up for a free trial. Try it out and see what you think. Take advantage of their limited-time buy one get one offer for Design Better listeners. That's crashplan.com/designbetter. Backup better with CrashPlan. And now, back to the show. Matt, a lot of what you're talking about is, you know, proportions are kind of built in, whether that's letting line height, as we would call it in the web world, type sizes, gutters, our grid, and so forth. How do you think about proportions and the math that's associated with that to get something that feels inherently connected and beautiful?
0: I think with proportions and padding, there are a few kind of go-to mathematical or process-driven approaches where like if I'm designing a button and I want to make sure the button feels proportional, I might typically instinctively do like 12 pixels of padding on the top and bottom and 24 pixels on the sides. Even when you're designing a letter form, if you're a type designer, a lot of like if you're thinking about a capital H, the crossbar of the H will inevitably be smaller than the vertical bars on the left and right, just because the way that that letter form looks, if you you know really dive into any typography, you'll notice that all of the crossbars are a little smaller. And so that, for whatever reason, is a visual thing that exists. And so I, I'm i keeping that in mind when I'm working on an interface and thinking about proportions, but it, it is, tricky to just say, okay, do it exactly like this and then you'll be good. It really kind of depends on the style that you're going for and the feel that you wanna go for. And even, you know, sometimes it's just like, let's try this four different ways and just kind of zoom out and then pick which one looks best. A lot of what makes design better is just iterating through a large volume of small design experimentations and that's really hard to do if you're focused on just UX and user experience only. So whenever I can kind of maybe isolate a component and just kind of play around with like four different versions of it or, or 12 different versions of it, sometimes you just kind of have to keep working it and refactoring it until it just feels right. And sometimes it's hard to know what feels right until you kind of stumble upon it. And so that does make teaching design a little bit more challenging But I think there are some foundational principles, kind of like the H crossbar and some general presets that you can get started with, but knowing that that's more of a rule of thumb and not necessarily the letter of the law.
1: How do you think about creating an efficient workflow? There are things out there like templates, but what sorts of tools or or resources do you think are really good right now for helping people kind of get into the game faster?
0: I've never really used a ton of templates. Studied graphic design in the university. There's a small, how do I say this kindly? There's a, a bit of a snobby perspective in some design universities. And whether I wanted to or not, I think I adopted some of that through studying that. And so because of that, and also just kind of the artist in me wants to, No, I got to create it. it. It must come from me. And so I think I started as an artist and then kind of got into interface design. And then I'm like, oh, this text needs to be readable. Or, oh, actually, these icons do need text. I can't just make it look good because that's what I want to do. That early on kind of encouraged me to just create things from scratch. And so I do think there's a lot of value in, you know, having some templates and some things to help you get started. And actually, I... One of the things that I do use very often are the iOS design kits, just because if I'm designing for a mobile screen, it's gonna look completely different on your big 30-inch display zoomed in to 200% versus the actual size on your device. And so a lot of times when I see some of my students designing mobile designs for the first time, they might be using 12-pixel fonts and 10-pixel fonts, And trying to recreate maybe some of the iOS stuff from scratch without knowing what some of those just standard sizes are. And so from the iOS perspective, just grabbing some of those pre-built design kits and saying, okay, this is actually 17-point font is what they use for all of their line items. And each of their rows are a minimum of 44 pixels. And grabbing those components and using them as a good baseline to kind of base your designs off of can be really valuable, and also just screenshotting things that have had a tremendous amount of thought already put into it. Like Amazon and Facebook have an army of designers that have poured over every detail of editing their profile and updating their their profile picture, and so it's really handy to just go screenshot some of that stuff and say, "Oh, they're using this point size for this part of the interface," and. Maybe they're using, oh, this form field is actually a little bit smaller than I thought it would. And where you might not necessarily be copying those designs straight up, but at least just constantly getting those inputs to help kind of shape those decisions that you're making. Even if you're not using a prebuilt kit, I think it's always helpful to have those references while you're designing. Do you have your own kind of self-made
2: tools that accelerate your workflow or maybe like specific plugins, tools that make your work very efficient?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to draw a lot of custom arrows and flow charts in Adobe Illustrator. And when Sketch came along, that kind of put an end to that. And so I, I actually ended up creating this big library of flow components where it was like, Flow up, curve right, flow up, curve left. And that became this library of assets that I would use to create like user flows that kind of helped me go faster, especially from like an early strategy standpoint. And then ultimately, I created it for Figma and then turned it into a plugin. So I've got this flow kit plugin that I use all the time for creating user flows and kind of conceptual content maps and things like that. And then on the interface side, I found myself on a project. I was working with an agency for Wells Fargo and we were reviewing these designs and one of the brand team designers or creative director from Wells Fargo were asking like, oh, are all these colors at least AA accessible? And I, I literally had no idea what they were talking about. And this was probably back in 2014 or, or sometime along in there. And I was like, I need to quietly look this up and see what they're talking about here. (laughs) Because apparently it is illegal for a bank to have too low of a contrast. I guess people do need to see what their bank balance says. So fortunately, I was already passing, but I had to go to the web and I had to copy my hex code for the foreground. I had to copy my hex code for the background. And it was just this laborious process. And I mentioned earlier, I'm constantly thinking about how can I be more efficient? How can I break this down and be very systematic about it. And so I remember just kind of putting some ideas together for a little menu bar app that I could use some eyedropper tool to quickly select the colors in the background and the foreground of my design. And then it could just spit out this contrast score. And then I wouldn't have to leave my flow of designing this particular interface just to go check a hex color. And so me and my buddy, Sam Sophus, developed this first version of this app called Use Contrast. And it was a little Mac menu bar app that just popped out. You can choose the foreground color and you can choose the background color. And then eventually, I think either last year or the year before, another guy helped me build the Figma plugin version of that. It's a free plugin. It's available on usecontrast.com. And what's good about the plugin, and now I use this all the time, is you can just select any text and it will automatically grab the background color and the foreground color and it shows you the score and then there's a couple of arrows that you can adjust to like, okay, I want my icons to have a 3.0 contrast and you can click an arrow to bring it down quickly or if it's text and you wanna make it 4.5 or 7.0 or vice versa, you can do that really quickly inside of Figma and I use it all the time. I selfishly wanted it just for me and Fortunately, a lot of other people like it as well, but it is, it's kind of like one of my go to plugins. That's amazing. And just for listeners, if
2: you go to Matt's website, mds.is, MDS is, you'll find a link to this and lots of other tools and things that he's built. So you talked earlier that you're sort of like a full stack designer, developer, you're coding out the things that you're designing and unique in that respect, I think these days, because as the web has matured, as this medium has matured, people have specialized more. How do you think about design prep and organization for potential handoff to someone else who might be building
0: this? That's a good question, because I feel like it differs a lot depending on whether I'm gonna develop it myself or whether I'm gonna hand it off to someone else, I typically don't spend too much time naming my layers or organizing things, especially when I'm you know kind of exploring a design. But then inevitably, as you get closer and closer to production, things need to get neater and neater. And so if I know I'm getting ready to hand something off, I'm constantly kind of doing sweeps through the design. And I'm like, okay, let me, at least organize and name all of the frames in a very sequential kind of way so we can at least understand the flow. And then I will slowly start to organize any components that I'm using and and then try to recreate a lot of my designs with components. I feel like I'm building this 80% solid mini design system at the end of the project. And then beyond that, I always like to just record a quick little video where I'm walking through and I'm in my mind, I'm talking to a developer and I'm mentioning, okay, here are the type sizes that I'm using. And I'm thinking about how would I set this up as a developer myself? I know I need to you know, set the H1 tag size and the paragraph tag size. And there's also gonna be some sort of system for spacing and margin and padding. I love to use like a four pixel grid for my implicit spacing. So I'm typically trying to make things either four or eight or 12 pixels. I will break my own rule from time to time and make it 10 or 20. I guess 20 is divisible by four, but I'm thinking about the mental model that I've used that hasn't really been documented. And I will record a video and just try to explain to a potential developer, hey, everything has this type of multiple of four. And if you find something that's 13 pixels, it's probably a mistake on my part. And we should just go ahead and bump it to 12. And I try to give a, enough leeway in the design because I know as a developer, you're gonna inevitably find more efficient ways to do something and possibly even better ways to do something beyond just handing someone a file and saying, hey, go finish this. And even better than that, I like to, you know, talk to a developer from the very beginning and have someone kind of that I can reach out to and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about that? And that way it's not just a big unveiling at the end of the project. So I I like to have that ongoing conversation even while the design is forming and shaping. And if I know something might be a challenge from a development perspective, then I want to go ahead and get buy-in from those people that would be in charge of that before I spend all the time designing it. I will adjust the design based on those conversations and then ultimately hopefully have a much more polished thing to hand off. I think hand off means something that has a lot of negative connotations in terms of just designing in a silo and then handing it off. But ultimately you do send someone a Figma link or you do actually hand something off at some point. It's just a matter of how many conversations did you have upfront about that before you finally release the files? Matt, last time
1: we chatted, we talked a little bit about the gaps that might exist between somebody who's gone through a design degree in a liberal arts program and what they might need to know coming into their first job. You know, A big part of that is I do believe in the fundamental value of that liberal arts education, learning about you know great literature and history, and, and especially understanding how to write clearly. But oftentimes that doesn't give you much time. In the program where I teach, the students are really only focusing on design in the last two years of their undergraduate career. And so they just don't have a lot of time to devote to the craft of design, whether that's visual design or typography, et cetera. So maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, ways to fill that gap, ideas, and yeah, some advice for students coming out of that type of program.
0: You mentioned copywriting, and I actually meant to touch on that earlier, which this is a small tangent, but I, I do also think that copywriting is such, you know, Aaron made the point about typography being one of the most important aspects of UI design. And I also think copywriting is a pretty invaluable skill. And in a lot of ways, writing copy, to me, is designing the interface. And the way that you phrase a certain sentence, I like to use you know an active voice versus a passive voice. And some of those things, you might not think, oh, I'm just designing an interface, I don't need to worry about that. And maybe some people come into that feeling maybe a little overwhelmed, but I try to take on the role of the copywriter, even if I know that maybe somebody eventually, especially if it's on a big project, might be a little bit more in charge of that. I'm not going to use a bunch of placeholder and things like that. So that's a small tangent about copywriting. But in terms of the liberal arts student coming in, I think one of the most valuable things that someone can do is start taking screenshots of apps or websites and maybe recreating them from scratch, like a full recreation, because you will start to understand, okay, they're using this font size, they're using these column widths, and they're using this button color, and you will start to get exposed to a lot of design decisions that you wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise because you're recreating this thing that, is maybe a little bit more complex and a little bit more advanced than you've you've ever done before. And so the more you can kind of practice that and flex that muscle of design, I think that ultimately will just keep you more informed. And you can even apply, you know, maybe some of those lessons that you learned from a recreation onto your own little side project or or maybe some open source project or something that you can have a little more control over that maybe isn't a part of your nine to five or your full-time job that can allow you to explore that a little bit more deeply.
1: Related to that, I'm curious, Matt, what your thoughts are about what's going to happen as artificial intelligence and machine learning continue to accelerate. And you can look right now at tools like, I think it's pronounced wizard, but spelled U-I-Z-A-R-D, where you can sort of provide a text prompt and it will create an interface for you. And there's obviously right now a lot of gaps in what the output there is and mistakes, et etc. But you can only imagine that's going to get better and better over time. So some of the students that may be in school right now, or people considering going back to school or taking classes like yours, maybe thinking, gosh, if I learn this stuff, what's going to happen maybe two, three, four years down the road when AI is accelerated to the point where it's it's sort of taking over a lot of these skills?
0: Yeah, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I've experimented a lot with things like ChatGPT for helping me write JavaScript because I'm not a great JavaScript developer, but it's actually pretty good at converting my pseudo code prompts into like actual usable JavaScript. And I can't tell you how many times I've designed a search icon. You draw a circle, you draw a line, and you rotate it 45 degrees. And there's so many repetitive tasks that I just know that ultimately AI will be able to just create this pretty consistently and pretty well once there have been a number of constraints added. And so I've already seen things pop up where it's like type a prompt, design a sign up screen and a forgot password flow and a create an account screen. And it will generate all of that. And I think ultimately, especially for possibly user experience flows and just general good practices when it comes to interface design, I think that will probably end up being a prompt. Maybe not this year, but at some point, I could see a lot of those things getting systematized by AI. But I also think that if you don't have a fundamental foundational knowledge of what it takes to create a good product, from what I've seen so far, at least in the short term, those AI generators, they're not that great at taking a really large concept and generating something awesome. They really, really excel in those smaller tasks. Like I can't just say, build me an app for X, but if I say, hey, here's some code and this is a function that is getting called, could this be more efficient? It works really well at that. And it says, oh, actually you can do this. And no, oh, that is great. And I think the same thing with design. I think it might be tempting for someone to think, I'm just gonna wait for AI to get awesome. And then I'll just be able to type a prompt and build my app and everything will be great. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't, but I also think that at that point, if that happens, again, this is all hypothetical. I could be completely wrong and I'd be happy to admit that later if it turns out to be true. But I think branding and the human touch and the human voice, I hope, will remain relevant enough to where people crave something created by humans to a certain degree, whether it's the product or the way it's written or the joke it tells. AI might get good enough to you know, render us all obsolete and we'll see what happens if that is the case. But I think in the short term, having a strong opinion about the way something looks, the way something is written, the voice and the tone, you know, Aaron is no stranger to designing for emotion. And so if we can keep that as one of our core tenants, I think we'll be safe. But fingers crossed. Yeah, those are good points. And we
2: did have a conversation recently with John Maeda, who's over at Microsoft right now, working on AI and developer tools. And he had a great metaphor for this, which was a co-pilot. You know, that a co-pilot could help accelerate our process, help us, you know, solve problems very quickly, but still a human involved that's doing a lot of that work.
0: Yeah, you know, if I'm polishing an interface or I'm polishing a design... I might have a design that I think looks really good, but I can tell there's something missing that just makes it like really stand out and really great. And a lot of times you can't get to that greatness without running through a few different experiments with maybe it's changing the padding or changing the color. You never know what change you might make that just kind of clicks and you're like, that's it. And I remember back in one of my typography classes in college, my uh, typography professor, Ronald Arnholm, who designed the typeface Legacy, if you've ever come across that. That's kind of like his crowning achievement. His feedback on all of our work would be, he'd look at our work and he would go, it's just not magical yet. It looks, you know, I just it just doesn't feel magic. And I'm just like, what? Just tell me how to make it magical. <laughs> He's like, I, I can't. You just have to keep playing with it until it feels like magic. And I feel like to go from 80% complete or 90% complete to maybe at least 99, it does take those experimentations and you're kind of constantly looking for magic. And there's a a quote by, it's either Penn or Teller, I can't remember, but I love the quote. And it says, sometimes magic is just spending a little bit more time than someone else would reasonably expect. And I feel like that works perfectly for UI design because to get to that level, It really just does take time. And if you looked at some of my design files, you would think that first version looked pretty good. You didn't need to go and create 40 more and experiment with all these others. But sometimes it's just like, I'm just pursuing beauty and this perfect component. And it can be a double-edged sword, You know, time and deadline and budget. (laughs) Those are very real things. But I think ultimately trying to get to that magical moment. I, I think that if you're able to do that, then you would perhaps have a leg up on AI-generated things.
2: That's a great place to leave it. Matt, last question for you, and we can close out. What are you reading, watching, looking at, listening to that's inspiring you today?
0: Ooh, I'm constantly doing all those things in great quantity. I'm rereading this book on my desk. I've got a book on my desk, Revising Prose. I think it was originally written in like 1976, maybe. It's just, it talks a lot about the active voice and how to revise sentence structures and the way you communicate, how to write better emails. He quotes Warren Buffett a lot in here and talks about how direct a lot of these successful people talk and communicate versus corporate speak, where they might use phrases like the determining factor, which kind of is just a lot of words that just might mean, this is why we made this decision. I guess diving back to my fundamentals of just communicating by text because I'm, I'm beginning to like write a lot of video scripts. I'm sending sales proposals. I'm doing sales demos. And so ultimately, like you said at the beginning, typography is one of the most important aspects of design and the written word is one of the most important aspects of communicating. So I'm currently taking a bigger deep dive on that and really trying to craft the way I'm, telling stories or writing a video lesson or communicating an idea to a prospect who might be interested in maybe putting their team through the shift nudge training program or any number of those types of things. So that's what I'm kind of thinking about at the moment. The elements
1: of style is another good one, by drunk and white. And I know we said that was the last question, but before we (laughs) sign off, Matt, where can folks find your courses?
0: Yeah, so if you go to shiftnudge.com, that is the main location for the courses. And coming up very soon, if not already, once this is published, I'll have a free Figma 101 course at shiftnudge.com Figma.
2: Matt D. Smith, also known as MDS on the internet, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better
0: podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: I love talking to Matt every time I see him. As I mentioned at the top of the interview, we live in the same city and we coincidentally realized only recently that our sons are friends and hang out together. But he's just such a talented designer and has this amazing attention, devotion even to detail and doing things really well. He just doesn't do anything halfway.
1: Yeah, that's really clear. I mean, if you hop over at his site, It's a beautiful site, first of all. Like it's clear he really knows what he's doing. But I think also just the testimonials there speak to the fact that if you go through his course, you're gonna get a lot out of it. And also, you know, if you're more on the entry-level side of things, like we touched on a little bit in the show, maybe your craft isn't quite up to par if you're coming out of a liberal arts program, but this can really help you bridge that divide that, that often exists there, or or even if you're later in your career and you want to come back and just kind of get connected to the craft again, I think there's a lot to offer on that end as well.
2: Yeah, there are a few key takeaways for me that I think are particularly salient for anyone who's designing UIs, whether you're new or or you're, you're far into it. One was typography and how he thinks about limiting type sizes. It's easy to get lost in like choosing fonts, getting very complex where it's a whole host of fonts, but he's really just trying to keep things simple and very much limiting those type sizes. He thinks in terms of like multiples, there's math to the way that he's working. And I like how he talked about how he communicates that to developers. I also really appreciated his approach to proportion. So type sizes, the hierarchy that happens there also translates into the padding or the gutters, the grid size, all the different things feel connected. And it's not something that a user necessarily recognizes that all of the math is there, but we feel it, that it's all in proportion and snaps together. And then he used the idea of color theory, which again, is a very deep subject. You can get lost into that for decades, but he's keeping it simple by just saying, like, what's the function of this color? Is this a brand color? Is this a CTA, what he called the pull forward color to help pull you through the interface? Those principles alone are just fantastic places to get you on a good foundation
1: to designing better interfaces. Yeah, the typography front, I think that idea, so my grandpa used to say, keep it simple, stupid, <laughs> you know, when you're working on something and it's like, that's such a good principle to have. I never studied typography too deeply. And so when I started doing, you know, interface design, I had to stumble my way through it and just happened upon, thankfully, folks like, Jonathan Heffler, who we're actually going to have on the show, hopefully in a, in a short while. But going to his site, seeing like they actually offer these type pairings. So you can keep something really simple, two typefaces and know that you're headed down the right track. So I love that simplicity. Another thing that we talked about towards the end that, that resonated with me was this, you know, we've been speaking a lot about AI recently. And I think just knowing that it can get you 80% of the way there even now a lot of the time, but you're going to still need those skills and those fundamentals to understand how to make something really, really magical. Something that people really love that human touch is going to remain super important. So I think that's worth knowing. For sure.
2: Yeah. And for me, when I think about AI and the creative process and the whole copilot metaphor that we heard from John Maeda, super helpful, can m- make us learn faster, move faster, but you know if ai is always starting us from kind of the same type of baseline there can be a great sameness to our work and that can happen just with templates in general but that's one thing that i think about you know in terms of what's next with ai and how it fits into our workflow is Where's the uh, that magic that Matt was talking about? Where's the kind of unexpected? And, you know, maybe it's possible that AI can be that magic that can interject something unexpected in our creative process that we would not have done ourselves.
1: So rewinding back to the beginning of, of our chat with Matt, I think one thing that I was really resonating with was when he spoke about choosing this more entrepreneurial path. And you and I, Aaron, you know, we took over this show this year and it's been so exciting. I mean, there's been some moments of fear along the way too, kind of being back on an entrepreneurial road. But just the fact that we have this show, which we love, we have an audience that um, we hope we're very connected to, that we're providing valuable stories to and information and and something that they really enjoy. I get to work every day and I'm so much more excited And frankly, I haven't been in a while to be working on something that I really care about. And I feel like other people care about too. And in fact, there was a young woman who wrote me on LinkedIn recently and said she started listening to the show back in junior high. And she decided Mm -hmm. to pursue a career in design. And she's now, I think, the second year of a design program. So having that kind of, you know, really hopefully positive impact on people just, it makes you feel really, really special.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's cool. I'm glad that you shared that. I mean, that is kind of amazing. And for us, you know, you're listening to us have these chats with people. We don't really know, like, how the podcast is received and if people are listening on a regular basis. We are, like Matt, we're dedicated to making things. And what he said about Saul Bass, like, we just have to make things no matter what, it's just, you know, it's a thing that's kind of built into who I am, I know. But hearing feedback from people like that, that this is useful is is really, that's special for us. That's really important. And working on this podcast and kind of expanding what we can do with this, we have ideas of lots more things that we wanna do. We've had some amazing guests that we've been recording lately and and a lot of new directions where we can take things. So. The entrepreneurial route, I think, is one that a lot of people are scared to jump into, me included, but it is so rewarding.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and on that note, if you're listening and you ever have any ideas for, you know, interesting directions to take the show, interesting guests, you can always reach out to us. We have an address available on the website. It's in each episode. You can also give us feedback at
2: dbtr.co/survey. Just tell us a little bit about who you are, your listening habits, and tell us what you'd like to hear in future episodes. That would be tremendously helpful to us. And just a reminder, in case you missed it at the beginning of the episode, you can get access to three free lessons from Shift Nudge that will teach you the fundamentals of UI design, taught to you by MDS. Go to dbtr.co/slash. Shift Nudge, that's dbtr.co slash shift nudge to get access to those three free lessons. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.